On today's show, I'm very fortunate to have a man named Craig Coleman. He is an actor, a writer, some would say provocateur. And I think after you hear him today, you will consider him a very unique Hollywood historian. We're going to talk about his book, 100 Years of Brodies with Hal Roach, and maybe even talk about some of his personal film projects. So welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you very much, Kelly. Glad to be here. My very first podcast, by the way. And wasn't that an amazing introduction of you? Well, I think it was accurate, that's all. (laughs) Well, you might be reading from your book today, so before we get into all that, I want to read a little bit and blow your horn from your biography on your website. This is, I think, some of the best writing you've ever done. I had to actually get out of thesaurus and look up a few of these words. Wait so here goes. Some of the best writing I've ever done. You've hardly read any of my writing if you knew what uh, the rest of my writing was. But that's for another. But continue, sir. Continue. <laughs> okay, here we go. A peripatetic wonder, child of nature, connoisseur of the exotic, former denizen of the nefarious Lower East Side New York City and Fungi Venice, California. Climber of Piney Peaks, purveyor of art and culture, actor, lover, tyrant, euphemizer, macaroni and cheese aficionado. I am all of these and more. I am also chronologically and geographically constituted for eligibility as President of the United States, and if nominated, I will not run. If elected, however, I may serve depending upon who might be Vice President. Etc. <laughs> yes, I wrote that in about 2002 when I launched my website. And I have to admit, and I haven't heard it since, I've never heard anyone else read it, but it seems to hold up even to this day. It's quite a tongue twister, kind of like meeting you is kind of like a living tongue twister. It's challenging, it's fun, you learn new things. You're, you're kind of like... um a renaissance man you know you're you're an actor i think first and foremost but like a lot of people nowadays you know you wear many hats including writer you know what do you consider yourself well you mentioned renaissance man it reminds me that when i was um, oh 14 years old going to the old globe theater in san diego they have a shakespeare festival every summer i was transfixed when i saw my first Shakespeare play, and I felt that I belonged to that era, to the Renaissance. I felt I was a a misfit in this time period because I felt more at home 400 years ago. Now, I met you last summer at the Holly Weird Film Festival in, what was that considered, Burbank or North Hollywood? Well, it's uh, it's the Carl Crew Nation. Uh <laughs> Right. The, the, the California Institute of Abnormal Arts. Which, which is, I, I think, the, the perfect place to actually meet you at, and probably you to meet me as well. Yes, I, I, I think like, kindred spirits, I think, gravitate to that place. It's quirky. It's a great place to show quirky underground films. But it also, you know, it, it gives me, like, when I go down to L.A. or Hollywood, 
it just doesn't seem like Hollywood exists anymore. So when you go to a place like, you know, Carl Cruz, CIA, California Institute of Abnormal Arts, you at least feel like you've arrived somewhere like, okay, something interesting is going to go on here. And hopefully I'm going to meet some cool Hollywood people here. It's definitely a unique uh, location, a fantastic place. And it was indeed where Calistra Zipper was married. Now, for those who don't know, you know, if you're a Howard Stern fan, you might know, but Callistra Zipper um, is an entity. It's the name of um, a docudrama that you created. Um, it, it's kind of took on a life of its own after you appeared on the Howard Stern show and told the story of um, a dead daughter um, embalming her, keeping her. You know, what's the whole story there? Well, it, it started in the year 2000 when I happened to wander into Bordner's, which is an old historical bar in Hollywood. And I was just going to get a, a quick drink at the bar. And there was a rather um, inebriated stand-up comic who started conversing with me. We were talking about the differences between stand-up comics and actors who could play a stand-up comic, which is what I said I could do, but I'm not a stand-up comic. He challenged me. And this is when Howard Stern was broadcast uh, over FM radio, and listeners could call in, uh, just pick up the phone, call the Howard Stern Show. If he wanted to talk to you, he would. If he didn't, he'd hang up. So this guy challenged me. Do you think you could fool Howard Stern? I said, yes, I'm sure I could. I listened to his show for years. I, I got his, his uh, whole modus operandi, and I, I was familiar with all his quirky uh, cast of characters there, Robin Quivers and uh, Della Bate and all those people. I said, sure, I could. He said, I'll pay you $50 if you stay on air with Howard for at least a minute. But if he hangs up on you before a minute, you owe me 50. I said, you got a bet. Well, this guy, a couple of days later, I gave him my card, went on my way, never thought anything more of it. A couple of days later, this guy called me back and he said, I've got the character for you to call Howard with. I said, oh, all right. And these are his exact words. He said, tell Howard you're a father who taxidermied his 14-year-old daughter. I said, you're sick, but I'll do it. I was going to show this guy I could, and I wanted 50 bucks. That would have been helpful. So I put on my writer's cap, pondered the situation. How could I keep Howard Stern on the air more than a minute? Well, I came up with this fantastic uh, tale, which I shared. I did call the Howard Stern show. I told the guy, I'm calling such and such a time, such and such a day, you get your stopwatch out. Let's see how long uh, I am on the air. Well, this turned out to be an incredible broadcast. Uh, I intrigued not only Howard, but uh, Robin Quivers, Gary Delabate, Jackie Martling was on the show at the time. All these people were fascinated. And then their switchboards became flooded with calls. Some people called me a, a, a psycho. Others thought it was a fantastic idea to preserve our beloved loved ones. You see, this isn't a frivolous phone call I was making. It was 
to espouse the formation of the Humanistic Taxidermy Society of America, where we should have the right to preserve our departed loved ones and keep them with us always in their natural earthly bodily form. You see what I mean? This works so well that you not only talked to him on the phone, you actually ended up being on his show, you know, live. Well, that's right. That's right. Robin uh, said, Howard, I want to see this taxidermied girl. And I said, you doubt my word because they were mocking me. I mean, it was unbelievable. And and suggesting all sorts of illicit uh, fantasies that I might have, this and that. I said, I'll bring my daughter Callistra Zipper to your show and prove to you that I am not making this up. Well, to my shock and amazement, they actually agreed to have me as a guest. They provided round-trip airline tickets and a hotel reservation. Now, the only caveat, they said, you'll have to put your daughter in baggage. I said, this is another reason I have to espouse the Humanistic Taxidermy Society. We must have equal rights for our departed loved ones to travel with us, to go to restaurants, theaters, sporting events, because they are preserved in a beautiful manner, in a very sanitary manner, might I add. And they're always very well dressed and, might I add, extremely well behaved. So I took the challenge and I did. I did go to the Howard Stern show from Los Angeles to New York. I remember that we passed through a rainstorm and I didn't even know if we'd make it. It was thunder and lightning. It was the scariest airline flight I'd ever taken. But we made it. And I brought Callistra to the show. It was, uh, it was aired uh, live, you might say, in a manner of speaking. Well, live and not live, I suppose. But it was aired throughout the nation. And um, and after I, it aired, it very quickly became one of his most notorious episodes. Yes, it did. And it was actually filmed for his CBS TV show, a seven-minute version, as I recall. And then the entire interview, uncut, was aired on E! Entertainment Television uh, later in November of the year 2000. And... Callistra's career just took off from there. So, and, oh, I, and I have to say, and Carl Crew uh, invited me to bring Callistra to Club CIA to have, because when she turned 18, we had a wonderful wedding ceremony for her. It was a mixed marriage, you know, the uh, bridegroom is alive. So, what was. Kalistra. I think that's what everyone asks when they hear the story. What was Kalistra? Was Kalistra an actual well, human? She's she's called she's often called Kalistra south of the border, but in English speaking lands we call her Kalistra. If Kalistra. you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. What did Howard Stern and his staff think when you brought in this thing did they think it was a mannequin did they think it was a cadaver what did they think this was well that was not my uh responsibility to determine what they would actually think my goal was to present Callistra 
as her loving father. Now, I, I am not her father, by the way. I merely resemble him a great deal. His name is Anthony Zipper. He had his daughter preserved because his daughter, well, she was about to pass away with an incurable disease at the tender age of 14. And she said, Daddy, please don't bury me. Please don't cremate me. Keep me with you always. So as a loving father, that's what Anthony did. Now, Anthony would in no way appear uh, on any show or discuss this. So I was, well, I went in his place, okay? Just, I guess I can reveal this 20 years later. But as far as some of these details you care to go into, I would rather not discuss them because I, I have had to sign a confidentiality agreement with Mr. Zipper. So if we could move on to other, other realms, that would be delightful. Thank you. Uh, exactly. Uh, the details of Callistra may be revealed in the future, but I do not care to do so in this podcast with all due respect. So we're going to have to wait for either another movie or maybe a book to learn that? That's possible. Yes, very, very possible. Very perceptive of you. Do you think there is more to the Callistra story to be told? Do I think so? I know so, beyond a doubt. Whether, but, since I have so many other stories to tell, and this was covered so thoroughly, uh, I don't think I don't think any more needs to be told unless there's a great public demand for it. You understand, but Callistra is really you want to talk about a cult following. She's got the most uh, minor of cult followings imaginable, especially all these years later. Now, back then, once it aired on CBS and E, I I could barely walk down the streets in Hollywood without someone going by and saying, "How's your daughter?" So that's when we just, when she turned 18, we decided to throw a big party at Club CIA. There must have been two, three hundred people there. We had rock bands performing. I mean, she was a big hit back in the early part of this century. But she, I think she decided to, uh, she said, Daddy, this is too much. I need to have a little bit of a private life now. So I respected her wishes, if you don't mind, Mr. Hughes. So uh, let's leave Calistra you know, in her in her glorious uh, privacy for, for now, if we may. Just leave her on the back burner. You know, you have a great voice for radio theater. You know, it's very popular now with all these lore shows and all that. Have you thought of maybe telling Callistra's tale as a radio theater? <laughs> well, you're giving me a lot of good ideas, especially since you've inspired me to purchase a professional microphone and get on Skype. I mean, I've been sort of a dinosaur. Uh, you mean, could I launch my own podcast, do you think? Well, Callistra, she's almost like a, a true crime story in a way. It sounds like a lot of people who enjoy those types of podcasts would enjoy your story of Callistra. Mm, thank you for the uh, suggestion. Maybe it's a very good idea. Well, the only other thing I'll say about Callistra is when I met you and you, I loved how you actually had a copy of it ready to go. I met you at the film festival, heard your tale, and you gave me a DVD, which I think is very important when you're an indie filmmaker. You know, always have a copy of your movie with you. I figured if anyone would be interested in my movie, which I subsequently made, my first digital video feature called the Callistra Zipper Story. It's 77 minutes with 16 humans and five animal stars. 
filmed all around Hollywood and its environs. I thought if anyone would be interested, it'd be some filmmaker attending and participating in the Holly Weird Film Festival. So I brought it along just in the hopes that I'd meet someone like you. Well, here's what's interesting. You, you did pick out the right person, because I know a lot of times when people give out DVDs, no one ever watches them, especially in L.A. Come on, everyone's got a project. But I think I was that exception the next morning. I actually watched your DVD all the way through, didn't fast forward, didn't pause it and start over an hour later. But here's the fun part. You know that I was staying with Alison Arngrim and her husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie. Mm -hmm. I, I think you got to meet her there that night, I got too. to meet her. She was so charming. I had no idea who she was. I met her at the bar. and We had a delightful meet and greet. And it was only later I discovered who she really was. So that next morning, I said, hey, Allison, Robert, um, let's watch this DVD. And they both sat down and watched the whole thing with me. I think it was like on a Sunday morning. We had a lazy, probably had some waffles and bacon, who knows what, and watched your movie together. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. And your reactions? Oh, I was very taken with it. They liked it. You know, I think since Allison met you, I think she was ready for anything. Because you're kind of your own live movie when people meet you. Hmm. I'm not sure quite how to take that. Uh... Well, you're very animated. You're very, um, well, you're an actor. So I think you, you come come to any meeting or when people meet you, you're just, you, you've got lots to say. You've got lots of stories. You're very entertaining. So I think you raise the bar high after they meet you. They think, okay, this guy is going to come through with something interesting. And you did. Well, thank you, sir. But don't forget the context. It was the Holly Weird Film Festival. I'm not always quite this animated when I'm in, for example, a courtroom or, uh, you know, or the hospital. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much. Yes, I'm inspired. But the thing I like about you, and this is what's fun about going down to L.A., because I live up in Washington State outside of Seattle, but you go down there and there's just a lot more hustle down there. And I like that. You know, people with their DVD, people, you know, blowing their own horn, which you have to do, you know, promoting yourself. And I like that about Hollywood, you know, and I miss it when I don't see ambitious people. You know, I like the fact that there's a little bit of... um self-promotion oh well you've got to you know if you're trying to survive in this very difficult city it's not easy to live here these days especially well as we all, as I'm we sorry. segue into the hal roach um how long have you been in hollywood because i know you you're also a stage actor you know what actually brought you to hollywood the film industry and you know do you like it down there Oh, my gosh. Well, let me, uh, in a nutshell, I grew up in San Diego, California, delightful place to grow up. And I picked up my dad's eight millimeter camera and I just started filming. And then in high school, I actually, I was bored with whatever we were learning in English class. And my English teacher knew I, ha I had a movie camera and I like to take movies. She said, why don't you write a script and make a movie? And that's what I did. Uh, tenth grade, I believe it was. 
there was a fat boy and a skinny boy in the class that were always goofing around and full of antics. And I had just seen a Laurel and Hardy comedy. And I said, let's make a Laurel and Hardy style comedy with these guys. And it was a wonderful experience. It was a 20-minute comedy that was a big hit. In fact, they had the whole school uh, come to a screening of my movie. And I was hailed a new filmmaker. And it took off from there. I made, oh, quite a number of films in high school. And then then I went to, oh, I, I went to Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon for my first year and a half of college. And I had more, I had a wonderful uh, theater professor there and they have a wonderful theater at the time. I don't know if it's still existent. Uh, And I was thrust into live theater. And uh, while I was there, I I applied uh, for a study abroad program to Mexico. I was also learning Spanish. And I thought for a, well, I'll apply. And I was accepted. So next thing I know, I'm living in Mexico, taking my now Super 8 camera. And I travel. I was 19 years old, traveling all over Mexico with my little camera. I went to villages, mountains, the big city of Mexico City. I went to um, fishing villages and jungles. And I had so much footage. That summer, I edited it. And it became a 40-minute documentary. I submitted it to UCLA. And next thing I know, I'm accepted to UCLA Film School. I'm 20 years old, and it was 1973. So here I am. Talk about culture shock. Uh, And I thought, here I am. I'm, I'm near Hollywood and everything I've... But this is before the Internet. I didn't know who was alive, who was not. But I remembered Laurel and Hardy, and I thought, well, I know they're gone. But whatever happened to their boss, Hal Roach? Could he still be alive? He'd be in his early 80s by that point. I looked him up in the phone book. Remember, they used to have phone books. The yellow pages? Yeah, well, he was in the white pages. The white pages were for residents, and the yellow pages was for business. And they were usually two separate big, thick volumes that every household had. Uh, This is for people who grew up with cell phones, you know. That's uh, another world long ago. But sure enough, in the white pages under Hal Roach in Bel Air was a phone number. I thought, could that be him? Well, I called it up, called up the number. A little girl answered the phone. Hello? (laughs) I said, is this the home of Hal Roach, who used to be a Hollywood movie producer she said yes it is i said oh may i speak with him just a minute grandpa telephone (laughs) the next thing i knew i was talking to hal roach i told him how i loved laurel and hardy i watched as many of their movies i collected their movies through blackhawk films you could buy them in those days I made my own Laurel and Hardy style comedy. I was now at UCLA about, uh, I would love to interview you. I, I just spontaneously, I said, I would love to interview you. He said, sure. Uh, meet me at the Bel Air country club next week, such and such a time. And I'll be in the card room. And that's wow. how it all started. Yeah. 
So that's Hollywood Hustle in action, just picking up the phone and calling calling Hal Roach. I had that instinct at a very young age. It's well, it's paid off in a number of ways. Yeah. Is at that point, how old uh, was he? Oh, it turned out he was 81 in 1973. He had already had a full career by that point. Oh, yes. Yes, he was in un, um, involuntary uh, retirement at that point. That was a story I learned years later. Whatever. He had the most incredible career. I don't know if you want me to give you a nutshell version of it or... Definitely dive into the nutshell version, especially for, for our millennial listeners. Okay, those who are completely unaware. Well, Hal Roach, he grew up in Elmira, New York, a little town uh, quite a ways north of New York City, which happened to have been the summer home of Mark Twain. Mark Twain actually wrote Huckleberry Finn there. And Mark Twain is indeed buried in Elmira, New York, in the same cemetery where Hal Roach is laid to rest. And Hal Roach told me that when he was in grade school, Mark Twain himself came to their class to give them a little talk. It's all detailed in my book. So I think uh, Hal Roach was inspired by the American style of humor of Mark Twain, the down-home qualities uh, the earthiness, the lack of pretense, the making fun of uh, venerable institutions, all those are seen in Hal Roach movies. Well, Hal, Hal Roach actually went uh, west as a young man. He ended up in Alaska and even in Washington State, I believe. He had an aunt who lived there. And uh, among his numerous jobs, he got a job I think supervising uh, a caravan of trucks going from perhaps it was Washington all the way down to uh, the Los Angeles area. And during this time, he saw in a newspaper an ad that said, Cowboy Extras Wanted. Have your own uh, outfits, know how to ride a horse, and work in Hollywood in the movies. Well, he found that intriguing. He went. He actually went down there, and he actually became a cowboy extra in the year 1912. Okay, that was the very early years of Hollywood. Max Sennett had just started his uh, comedy studio, and Hal was working at the. It was the Bison Film Company, which later became it blended with Universal. And uh, within two years, Hal Roach formed his own motion picture company called the Rollin Film Company. And they had their first uh, studio. Well, you wouldn't call it a studio, but the offices were in an old Victorian mansion in downtown L.A. And his friend, Harold Lloyd, and he began making a series of comedies. And they would film around the parks and the lakes and the streets of L.A. with their very minuscule crew and a camera they purchased. And uh, eventually, the Pathé Exchange, which was the world's first motion picture releasing company, 
they started in France and they had offices in New York City. Well, the New York branch accepted one of his comedies called Just Nuts and distributed it. It became a big hit. And they ordered more comedies. Well, this set Roach on his path of success. He was an incredible pioneer in motion pictures. And uh, by 1919, he had purchased, I believe it was 14 acres in Culver City, California. And this is years before MGM built their studio there. But he had known Harry Culver who owned this vast track of, I think they were barley fields. They were, it was uh, land between the ocean and Los Angeles that was completely undeveloped. So Roach took advantage of that and very, uh, very economically purchased the land and built the Hal Roach Studios, which were there until 1963. Pretty amazing. So Hal Roach was there at the beginnings of Hollywood in the motion picture industry. He saw it develop. He was one of the very first producers to equip his studio for sound films, talkies. He had that installed in 1928. And uh, years later, 20 years later, 1948, by that time his son was... Uh, uh, working with him in the company. And the son said, you know, the future is television. And they decided to completely convert from a motion picture studio to television. And for 10 years, they had a very successful uh, television roster of shows. So, uh, but, but the sad thing is, in, in 1959... His studio was shut down. It's a long, complicated story. It was shenanigans by some Wall Street crook. And if they ever make a movie about it, I think Ben Kingsley should play him because he was a, a real villain, a real villain. And uh, poor Mr. Roach, uh, well, what could he do? He, he valiantly struggled to interest Hollywood in other projects, but uh, he didn't have much of much of a go at it. And by the time I met him in 1973, he was happily retired, but still uh, full of plans and ideas. In fact, my first meeting with him, he told me, do you know television is about to transform? I said, what do you mean? He says, there's going to be pay television in the near future. Yeah, that was about five years before it actually happened. He knew what was going on cable and everything and the whole transformation of it he knew it was happening well uh, ever since you first told me about the book and your relationship with hal roach there's one question i've always wanted to ask you and that is you know this man who launched you know harold lloyd and you know the little rascals laurel and hardy just these huge enterprises that were so popular by the time you met him and then even later in his life, because you did know him for, you know, almost many... 20 years, he lived to be almost 101. Yeah. So you definitely had, you know, a, a friendship with him. You know, you knew him for quite a while. By the end of his life, do you think he thought that people were not going to remember him? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, in 1984, he was given a lifetime Oscar at the Academy Awards. He was constantly interviewed by 
by American crews and and uh, and production companies from around the world. No, he was very well respected, revered uh, all the rest of his life, and he he delighted in that. Now you're in Hollywood, so obviously people are a little more savvy. When you've been out there with this book, maybe in other places or interviews or book signings, are there a lot of people who, you know, say not just who was Hal Roach, but who, you know, are starting to forget Laurel and Hardy or the Little Rascals or Harold Lloyd? You know, are are we losing that with this next generation? <laughs> That's a very good question. I actually went to... Uh the what is it the la film school or something it's on sunset boulevard right near the arc light theater and there are always young film students loitering about the sidewalks and chatting when my book came out and i had postcards and i would literally go up to them and say have you ever heard of hal roach not a single one had no it's definitely uh Maybe it's the dumbing down of America, the lack of interest in our history. Uh, I don't know what it is. But to be honest, I found very few younger people. There are some. There are definitely some younger people who, who love Laurel and Hardy or the Our Gang. Our Gang kids, it was later when they were, uh, the shows were released to television. They called them the Little Rascals. But originally, but some of it, it used to say Hal Roach's Hal Roach presents our uh, how was it Hal Roach presents his little rascals in our gang. So uh, it has a couple of different uh, titles. But, it seems uh, like comedians, even modern young comedians, at least have an appreciation because the Laurel and Hardy style of comedy is still revered, you know, and around the world. Oh, yes. Well, there's nothing like them. They're at the pinnacle. And uh, it was fascinating. Okay, um, so I knew Hal Roach for, for almost 20 years. And uh, when he was 96, he invited me to stay at his home to help him develop his comeback comedy. That's what he called it, to work on a script. And uh, that was quite an experience. And what was the point I was trying to make? Uh, you were... Oh, the comeback comedy. So what happened? Did you develop that? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's all in my book. I don't want to reveal too much at this point. There was a point I was trying to make based on that. Um, was it was because, previous... the, because his comedy was still appreciated like the Laurel and Hardy style? Oh yes. Well, you know, he did pitch this project and universal, uh, did choose to do a remake of the little rascals. It was, uh, Penelope Spheris directed and it was pretty popular mm -hmm. unfortunately it it was released about a year after mr roach passed away i think oh so but he there's never so got many to see that he never got to see it uh but he knew he knew he was not forgotten by by people at least 20 years ago nowadays uh the younger as you say the younger generation might not know him and that's why i decided to write a book about him when someone told me, and by the way, I kept notes from the initial interview I had in 73 and our numerous visits over the years and phone calls. And, you know, over the years, unexpected discoveries were made. Lost Laurel and Hardy films were found and this and that. And Hal Roach was on top of everything. It was pretty amazing.
So what was it like for you being, you know, young in film school? You know, you met him when you were 20. What long-term influence did he have on your career? Oh, gosh. Uh, only the fact that he, he was such a gregarious, friendly man. And he, he treated me like an equal. That's all I can say. Like, age, our age difference meant nothing. We, we bantered back and forth. He liked my sense of humor. Uh, he liked me and he encouraged me. What more could I say? What more could I want? Uh, as far as doing anything, uh, to help forward my career and whatnot, absolutely nothing. No. Uh, he was just encouraging. We would talk about ideas and, uh, I knew very little about the details of his career until, because he wouldn't talk too much about that. He was a man who lived in the present, not in the past. Like I say, he was 96 and he had a, an idea for a new comedy he wanted to have produced. And that's what he wanted to focus on. Now, when we would have dinner together, I would, I would ask, well, what about uh, Will Rogers? You knew Will Rogers and this and that. And then he would talk about the past. But otherwise, he was totally into what was going on now. And uh, I remember a big article about Steve Martin came out in Time magazine. And he, he went on and about uh, Steve Martin and the comedians today compared to the ones back then. And um, Benny Hill, I remember that. He, Benny Hill was very popular on TV. And uh, Hal Roach liked him a lot, but he said he's got to clean up his act if he wants to appeal to the kids. He would have been much more popular, he thought. If Benny Hill was a little more, uh, you know, uh, PG, I think he would have been his term. Um, so you're hearing all these stories. Uh, at what point did the light bulb go off and you, you thought, I've got to write a book about Hal Roach? Okay, well, this, oh, years went by. Oh, and then he passed away and I went to his funeral and that was quite an experience in itself. It's all detailed in my book because I sat near uh, Spanky was there and Joe Cobb, who was one of the early fat boys in the R Gang Kids from the 20s. He was there. And uh, Anita Garvin, one of his beautiful flappers, was there. And I, my great regret was not having a camera with me that day. But I didn't think it was appropriate to bring a camera to a funeral. You know what I mean? But but afterwards, all the surviving our gang kids who are now in their 70s and 80s and up, I guess, all posed for photos. And I said, oh, where's my camera? It was a once in a lifetime event, you know. So anyway, um, so the years go by and uh, I realized I have oh, about a 75 page manuscript from my first meeting with Hal Roach till he passed away. And I thought maybe, uh, maybe it could be published. And I had photographs that I had taken of Mr. Roach, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So there is Bear Manor Media, which special, it's a book public, pu publication that specializes in books about old Hollywood, early radio, and that sort of thing. So I approached Wh them. Why is it? important to preserve Hollywood history. Ah, uh, why is it important to preserve any 
sort of history or any of our memories? That's not a question I can really answer. I don't, I'm not very philosophical about it. All I know is I think it's important to, to know where we came from and to appreciate the great work that has been done in the past, a lot of which are from unique individuals that will never be here again. In a unique time in our history, the history of humanity, for example, Hal Roach filming from 1914 on the streets of L.A. Uh, all through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, you see our civilization and culture change and evolve from flimsy little cars and with horses and buggies uh, traveling the streets along with cars to Suddenly, no more horses. Now the cars are bigger and sleeker and made of metal. Now there are freeways. I mean, you can literally see the changes. Uh, I think that in itself is quite fascinating. There's a fellow that goes around. He takes the uh, film clips of from the 20s and 30s, filmed on the streets of L.A. and Hollywood and Culver City. He goes to them to the same location today, before and after shots. Quite fascinating to see. When you talk to Hal Roach, what do you think he was most concerned with, the changes in Hollywood? Do you think he had any disappointments with the direction Hollywood was going? Well, I know he told me personally that, uh, he says, Hollywood is prejudiced against 96-year-old producers. <laughs> So a lot of ageism in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Definitely. Undoubtedly. Was he also someone that I know for a lot of early producers, you know, their rights to their movies and when things, you know, went on to TV, did he feel like he was always fairly compensated? Well, he was pretty much on top of that. The ones that weren't compensated, for example, the famous uh, Laurel and Hardy, well, their films were made before television existed, so they had no uh, residual rights in their contracts. So in the early 50s and all through the 50s and 60s, when Laurel and Hardy shorts and features were constantly broadcast on television all over the country, they didn't get a penny. And they were, very, they were rather bitter about that. But Hal Roach, uh, he invested wisely. He had numerous other uh, productions, of course. And he was a great businessman. He worked with, you know, the, the tops of Hollywood. In 1926 is when he really hit his peak by signing a contract with MGM to have MGM distribute his little short comedies. And he, he decided from that point on, his little shorts would have the production values of feature films. And he kept pushing for quality, quality, quality. And uh, I found a photograph of Hal Roach at, uh, I think it was maybe Marion Davies Beach House in 1926. And I mean, the creme de la creme of Hollywood was there. Buster Keaton, Greta Garbo, Louis B. Mayer. And they're all uh, posing for a picture with Hal Roach sitting on the sand, cross-legged, you know, the new, the new, uh, the new guy in town. So he... that sounds amazing. Um, 
what I'm wondering, just the mechanics of the book, you know, there are some kinds of books that are film and motion picture history, but like you're saying, this was a personal relationship. You had a lot of, you know, inside of information that you just don't read in, in a dry historical book. So what was your whole approach with this of mixing your personal you know, relationship with this man, with his career? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, I, uh, I wanted to blend uh, facts. I wanted to be accurate as possible. I am also fascinated by the, the process in which motion pictures evolved from the earliest days and how Hollywood itself evolved and became such a huge industry and how Hal Roach was right there at the beginning. Uh, and it was very personal with him. It wasn't esoteric or, or uh, something you'd read in books. And then someone said, do you know how Roach's business papers are all stored at USC? I said, you're kidding. Well, I went to explore, and sure enough, there are boxes and boxes. I'm not sure how many. Uh, at least there might be about 40 huge boxes full of folders full of the original business papers, telegrams, letters, unbelievable uh, documents, the, the real thing, all stored there. And that's a, that's a story in itself. You know, in 1963, a, an army tanker came in to knock down the whole studio. It, and they were destroying everything. They had a four-day auction to sell everything off. The studio went bankrupt in 59. They tried to make a go of it. Some shows were filmed there, including a Twilight Zone episode with Elizabeth Montgomery was filmed there. As, uh, who was the other guy? Um, she and, a, and another man were the last survivors after a nuclear blast, and they decided to film it at the abandoned Hal Roach Studios. So you get an idea of what the condition was like in the early 60s there. Okay. Well, uh, so so um, along those lines, so when Hal Roach was still alive and during the course of knowing him, was he conscious of his legacy? Like, was he conscious of, okay, I've got to preserve these artifacts. I've got to make sure these records survive and somehow are documented. No, in that case, I don't believe so, because it was the auctioneer, the head auctioneer. I learned later, after a lot of research, how did those papers get to USC? Just before the, the administration building was about to be demolished, because they were going to level the whole thing and build a, a car lot there or something. You know how crass uh, business can be. They didn't care about preserving the great Hal Roach studio. It was valuable real estate. And they wanted to put new business there. Well, the head auctioneer had someone just gather all the papers that were in the files, in the desks, dump them in boxes, get them out of there before the building was demolished. They, they languished in, a, in an abandoned city jail for a long time, I discovered, until finally someone uh, donated them to the USC film school, where they are to this day. And I had to get a special permit. I had to examine them box by box in a special reading room with a monitor there to make sure I didn't uh, 
swipe a page or, you know, anything like that. I spent uh, virtually all of 2013 and into 2014 researching every document in those boxes. And I came up with the most incredible material that hasn't been revealed at all. I mean, these are personal uh, business correspondence between Hal Roach and his producers, Hal Roach and, and Louis B. Mayer. The whole evolution of how Laurel and Hardy became a team is documented in these letters and telegrams. At it's this really... point, would you say with all this research you've done and knowing him personally that you are one of the top, if not the top, expert on Hal Roach? Uh, no, I can't say that. There is a certain gentleman by the name of Richard Ban, B-A-N-N, who uh, formed a very strong business relationship, and I guess a friendship as well, with Mr. Roach in his later years. Mr. Ban is much more of a businessman and a strategist than I am. My relationship with Hal Roach was more of a creative one, you understand? Hal Roach was a wonderful combination of business and creativity. He could, this is, I think, the key to his great success, because he could talk with crazy clowns, artists, writers, musicians, and understand their issues and figure out uh, all sorts of creative uh, problems and solutions. And he could deal with the technicians and he could deal with the businessmen. Now, Mr. Ban is certainly more of a businessman than I am. And uh, he has probably voluminous uh, notes, documents, and uh, minutiae. The man is immersed in the minutiae of Hal Roach, whereas I take a broader picture and knew him uh, less professionally, shall we say. I was so much younger than he was, and he was encouraging to me, but he never talked to me about uh, profit and loss and uh, the bankruptcy or any of that. I didn't know any of that until I started doing my own research. You see what I mean? Sure. So Mr. Ban would say, who is this upstart Mr. Coleman who dared to write a book about <laughs> Hal Roach because I've been, frankly, sort of ignored by the, um, shall we call it, the Sons of the Desert Mafia, if I may be controversial. <laughs> well, that, that means that all the more credit to you for digging deep and finding the information that you did. And I gave Mr. Ben all the credit in the world because he helped preserve so many wonderful films with his great efforts. And But uh, somehow he seems a bit chagrined that someone else came out with a book about Hal Roach before he did. But he'd had plenty of decades to do it, you know. And it also, I think, speaks to the fact when, you know, someone of Hal Roach's age, you know, when you first met him... You know, you want to interview people that, you know, that know your subject. And it seems like there probably weren't that many people left, even when you first met him. Were you able to actually get any first-hand interviews? Well, that's what I mean. Yes, that first, that first day we met in the card room. I brought paper and pen. Um, and I, listen, there was a wonderful book by William K. Everson uh, called The Films of Laurel and Hardy which I bought it as a teenager. And I, the, 
at the time they had 105 films from the very beginning up until 1951 when they made uh, their last film in France. I studied that book inside and out. I started collecting Laurel and Hardy shorts through Blackhawk Films, studying them. I became an expert in Laurel and Hardy, their individual gags, each of their films, when they were produced, who the directors were, who their cast members were. I was, I was a freak, okay, an encyclopedic knowledge of Laurel and Hardy, and that's what really impressed Hal Roach, and that's what led to our enduring friendship. Uh, well, you proved yourself to him. It wasn't just, you didn't just show up on his doorstep. You honored him by really researching his work. Oh, you bet I did. Uh, but there, I mean, uh, the focused on the Laurel and Hardy films. I didn't even know about. I knew he did the uh, Our Gang. I knew he had uh, Thelma Todd and Zasu Pitts. He had a female Laurel and Hardy comedy team for a while in the '30s, and then he started making features and television. I knew very little about that at the time, but I learned everything after I started going through his uh, incredible archives. From the moment you decided to write the book and then finished it, how long did that take? Not not counting all the, you know, um, knowing Hal Roach and spending time with him, but when you said, I'm going to sit down, formalize this, how long did that take you to get that to publication? I can remember it was January of 2013 when uh, the publisher at Bear Manor Media said, well, you know, why don't you write, why don't you expand on this? They were willing to to publish the 75-page manuscript with photos. But then when I found there were these documents, and then I realized the year 2014 would be the 100th anniversary of Hal Roach becoming a movie producer. And the Sons of the Desert, the Laurel and Hardy fan club, would be having their convention in Hollywood in 2014, the summer of 2014, I said, that's got to be my goal. I want to have my book published by the summer of 2014. And I started in January of 2013. So I dedicated those months, that year and a half, to completing my book, writing and researching the archives, and then writing my book. So from that first 75 pages, how long is the this current book that you wrote? Oh, and I must say that... Uh, it's published on demand. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I had the luxury of fans would, when it was first published, fans would uh, contact me and say, oh, did you know this and that? Did you realize this and that? More facts kept pouring in that I didn't realize. And I realized, wait, I have to have a factual book. I have to correct this. I have to correct that. And my publisher. Well, what a luxury to be able to do that. Oh, is that your phone or? Uh... It, it was probably, um, uh, uh, what did you call it? A Sons of the Desert fan probably is, is uh, eavesdropping on our conversation. Oh, I stuff. see. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, you asked. So I actually have had about four additional versions. I finally, finally, and my finally, uh, I had to say, this has got to be it. Typos. I, I was my own editor, by the way. Uh, Bear Manor was very busy, and they, they couldn't provide the proper editor. Well, thank goodness I have 
25 years of proofreading and editing professional experience. So I edited and proofread my own book. And finally, in 2018, the final version, the final version, and the final version is how many pages? I have it here. 364, including the index. Wow. That really grew up from 75 pages. Oh, yes. And very rare photographs, too, by the way, that were included in these boxes. I found all sorts of wonderful photographs that uh, USC gave me permission to publish. Very nice. It almost sounds like, you know, during that in-between phase, is like a Wikipedia page that you could update. And that's pretty cool that you can do that because, you know, back in the old days when you do a revised edition, it was a pretty major endeavor. Exactly. And uh, for example, oh gosh, I've met film historians with wonderful books who told me personally how they regretted not being able to update their book. Or they did update it once and then they realized they wish they could do it, do it again. But I've got to tell you, the publisher at Bear Manor Media was wonderful to me, uh, Ben. So that uh, now I, I'm very proud of this 2018 version, which has, uh, well, it's, it's the finishing touch, I must say. Very good. Well, we're not going to wrap up quite yet, although the time's flying by and I could probably talk to you for hours. But just so I don't forget, where can people find you and the book online? Oh, the book's available on Amazon.com. Under 100 Years of Brodies. It's the, the number 100. And uh, what is a Brodies, everyone asks me. It was a slang term Hal Roach used. And you'll have to read the book to find out what it means. Excellent. The, <laughs> uh, so Amazon.com is the best place. My website you were talking about, CraigCallman.com. I have a contact uh, page for that if someone wants to contact me for any reason. And, uh, yeah. Well, when people go to your page, I encourage them to go. I think it's the tab Hollywood where you have pictures with lots of other I think classic Hollywood people, Burgess Meredith and on and on. So it seems like that's kind of a thread. It's not just with Hal Roach, but you know, you know, I think a lot of classic Hollywood people and you're keeping their memory alive too. I've studied, I'm very eclectic and I branched out and studied so many uh, aspects of Hollywood history from the comedies, the dramas, innumerable directors who I love, you know, Michael Curtiz, John Ford, uh, you name it, this, that, and the other. And I try to watch, I try to be a completist and see as many John Ford movies and Michael Curtiz movies as possible. I go to the Billy Wilder Theater where they show beautiful, you know, and on the big screen, nitrate versions of fabulous old movies and whatnot. And, oh, talk about William K. Everson, the great film critic who wrote the book about Laurel and Hardy. I met his widow uh, at the Billy Wilder Theater, and, and we watch movies together, and we have a great time. It's just, you know, these things come alive. I never could have anticipated all this when I was a teenager just starting out. I had no idea what would happen. I'm very happy it did. You, see, you start at a, you know, film school, and, you know, you never know 
couple decades later where you end up? I, I and, bet you know, a lot of your, well, I bet a lot of your students, you know, your um, classmates, probably would have enjoyed your path. Well, I can't speak for any of those characters, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, there's a lot of rivalry, and uh, people don't care what you're doing and whatnot. Let's face it. But I hope the fans out there, the purists who uh, appreciate the art, art for art's sake, I always say. You know, one thing you have down in Hollywood, and I, I didn't go there, but I saw it. It's just right off Hollywood Boulevard. It's called the Hollywood Museum. And I see online that they have a lot of events. And it seems like they favor a lot of, I think, you know, vintage or classic Hollywood stars that might be forgotten. And kind of, you know, they get a little reminder when there's an exhibit at that museum. And it seems like there's some really creative shows that they put on there. Oh, are you talking about the DeMille Lasky barn, the the uh, barn that was used for the first feature film made in Hollywood that's now a museum? Or, yeah. see, there are several different what they call museums here and there. And now it's going to be opening, they say, sometime this year in 2020. The Academy. No, that, that sounds good. The one I'm talking about, I think it, it's fairly new, maybe within the past few years. But I've seen like on Facebook, um, on their page, a lot of things they've had. It just seems like a lot of um, nostalgic kind of exhibits, sometimes with the actors or people, sometimes not, sometimes with costumes, sometimes a book signing. But I just thought that was really cool because it wasn't so obvious. I think they featured a lot of people that, you know, maybe aren't as, you know, brand name anymore or a household name as much. And we need a little reminder that these people, you know, still made a big contribution. Yeah, I think you mean the Hollywood Heritage Museum, which is actually housed in the old DeMille barn. And okay. they do have wonderful events. They have... Uh, in a barn. So yes. is, this, is this off Hollywood Boulevard? Is this the one I'm thinking of? It's, it's north of Hollywood Boulevard, and it's directly opposite Hollywood Bowl. There's okay, an area of land. This is a different one, I think, but yours sounds intriguing, too. I'm going to look that up because I, I want to go to that next time I go down there. Oh, yes. And then there's the where, in the old Max Factor uh, building is another museum. Maybe they have other thinking of what, what's yeah, that maybe, one called? Oh, what is it called? I, I forgot the actual name, but it's on Highland just off Hollywood Boulevard. I'm pretty sure that's the one. That's the one. Oh, yes, yeah. they have wonderful exhibits there as well. And uh, imagine if you're coming from out of town, you know, everyone says, oh, I want to see Hollywood. So you take people to Hollywood Boulevard, which is fine because that's where the Walk of Fame, you know, on the sidewalk. But it's just a lot of stores, you know, and, and you want to like, I think people who go there want to arrive at something that says Hollywood to them. So that's why I think that, you know, museum is quite an arrival kind of place. And hopefully if you time it, when there's an exhibit, you can go there and, and feel like you've had a taste of Hollywood when you're down there. Yes, you've got to search for these. Uh, so the Hollywood Heritage Museum, across from the Hollywood Bowl, the museum at the uh, Max Factor Building, which is on Highland, just off Hollywood. And mm -hmm. there's going to be a multi-million dollar brand new, it's going to be the tourist attraction 
to end all tourist attractions for fans of Hollywood movies. That is opening sometime later this year. Not quite in Hollywood. It's going to be, it's at the old May Company. I believe it's around Wilshire Boulevard, the Miracle Mile, near La Brea, near the La Brea Tar Pits. Okay. Look it up. It's, it's been in the makings for decades. Do you know that? And it's finally going to open this year. Well, I'll definitely check that out online. Here's kind of, I think, my wrap-up question or questions. Um, so I hope you say yes to this, because if you say no, we won't have anything to talk about. And my question is, you know, after writing such a massive book like this, would you like to write another biography about someone? And if so, you know, who would that be? Another biography of someone. Whether it's well, Hollywood I, I, or, you know, some other kind of profession. Well, I've got to tell you, I did so much research. I have at least two more books I could write about the Hal Roach era. Okay. I could. I, so I, would this like maybe be like the early period, the middle period? What would the slant be on it? Mm, very good question. Well, there, there would be a great book about his son, Hal Roach Jr., which was quite a story and very few people know anything about. It's, it's rather a tragic story, and so I really hesitate. I tell the story within this book about his son, uh, the pertinent facts. So I don't know if I want to spend months of my life going into that, but I could. Another thing would be, how about a book about letters to the Hal Roach Studios? The fascinating letters from fans, from famous celebrities, from business people. Uh, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. I could do that too. But who now else? Are these would... ones that? Well, how did you have access? Was that part of the archive at the USC Film School? Yes, it was. Okay. And I, I didn't have a laptop at the time, and I literally, and they wouldn't let you have a pen in the place. I had oh, no. to use these little pencils and big index cards to make my notes. I was able to get also, uh, you know, Xerox copies of certain documents. And I just have this pile. I've got <laughs> myself boxes of this research material. But, you know, is there much of a demand for it? I've got other things to do. By the way, I'm right now editing my first really professional video project with two wonderful actors and it's a comedy and it has elements of the old style. Uh, yeah, a little bit of the slapstick here and there. And I'm pretty proud of it. It's called Skidoo Ruins. Interesting. I, Is that going to be a short, a feature? Well, it's, it's a feature length. However, I realized the very first scene works as a little, story all by itself so we have filmed the first scene and i'm editing that as a short and uh and you yeah. appear in it too you're acting no, it no. i'm the writer the director and the editor okay and I, I was so and the actors i have two wonderful actors old timers in hollywood uh one gentleman uh, a bit of a checkered career. He was in several of the Russ Meyer movies. Are you familiar with Russ Meyer's? Well, absolutely. Vixen, Super Vixen, and what whatnot. 
Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens. He might have been in that one also. <laughs> well, th this gentleman is about 81 now, and uh, I had just the role for him. And his his buddy, this is uh, about a couple of eccentric World War II veterans. And his buddy is the most wonderful comedian. Uh, he's getting up there in years. His father was a famous television producer. He worked uh, with Alfred Hitchcock on his shows. Uh, he was uh, I Spy. Remember the series called I Spy? With, yes. Was that Robert Culp? Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. Yep. His father produced that and several others. So this guy is steeped in... Oh, and his mother was a showgirl on Broadway with Ethel Merman and Eddie Cantor and all that sort of thing. So he is real showbiz background. And he is wonderful in this movie of mine, I might, I might add. Uh, I'm just now beginning to edit. And when I find myself laughing while I'm editing, <laughs> I know it, it's a good sign. So well, I uh, imagine when you work with people like that who have so much firsthand knowledge of Hollywood history, do, do you spend a lot of time off camera talking to them about that? Oh, not that often. No, not really. There are not many left anymore. Do you get any uh, Russ oh, Meyer except, stories? Except, uh, pardon me? Do you get any Russ Meyer stories out of that actor? Yeah, I do. But as I, as I, uh, I'm not one to dish or gossip. I like to keep things on a high plane, if you don't mind, uh, Mr. Hughes. <laughs> well, it's like gossip. I'm enticed. Preserving history. Come on. You, I think you have a, what's the word? No, because it's coming through you, it can't be gossip because you, you're respectful with all your stories. So it's oh, just like, like, aren't you curious about the mechanics of, Gosh, when you worked on Vixens, what was it like? Was oh, it I did. Yes. I, we've had yes, we've had those. I mean, not like you say, "Hey, who did you sleep with on this set?" No, it's like, what was it like? You know, working with Russ Meyer and those stories. You well, know maybe you would like to interview this gentleman about that. What's his name? I'm trying to figure out. I'm going in my mind a mental rolodex of. Who was in some of those movies? Well, he was also uh, well-known for being a villain in two original Star Trek episodes. So some, some Trekkies would certainly know who he, who he is. His name is Garth Pillsbury. Like the Pillsbury Doughboy. Kind of like that, yeah. Very nice. Now, I actually met um, Russ Meyer once. This was back in the 90s. Mm. Interviewed him. He was very interesting and mysterious so i actually um talked to one of his actresses so you kind of piece things together you know i got kind of her point of view his point of view i think like you you know with hal roach it's not like it's one-sided but the more points of view you can get you can get a, a bigger broader picture of a person don't you think oh yes uh-huh uh i i tell it like it is it wasn't a hundred percent you know it wasn't uh uh, all fluffy, fun fantasy stuff. Mr. Roach could be quite a gruff old gent, and the older he got, the gruffer he could get. You know what I mean? And I tell it the way it was. But I had a deep respect for him, and we cared about each other. Uh, but I, but there were years when I didn't spend much time. I'm not going to pretend that he was oh one of my best friends. No, I tell it the way it is. And uh, 
I've never known such a, a great man as he was. I, I swear. He had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, even in his extreme old age, he was robust and interested in life. He kept his marbles to the very end. And well, when he was well, 90... Huh? Well, it seems like anyone who survives in that business for so long, you got to be tough. <laughs> yeah, tough in a really good way. Tough, but not be so, like, psychopathic and burn every bridge. No, he wasn't at all. Because there's so many talented people who come to Hollywood, as I'm sure you see all the time, and I think they sometimes think that toughness means you know meanness or that they don't still have to be polite there's a toughness that can still be gracious right exactly exactly so what would you say to like the new 20 year olds coming out to hollywood whether they're going to usc film school going just indie you know just becoming you know someone entering their first job with a studio you know, what would be your advice to any of them, whether they're a director, an actor, to make a long-term career in Hollywood? Uh, my advice would be to contact me and maybe I could, uh, you know, provide some services to, uh, as an actor, a writer, a director. I'm being very selfish and very particular since you asked me, rather than me trying to say what they can do. Well... All I know is what I can do. And if someone wants to uh, collaborate with me, I think it would lead to a very long career, okay? And so to do that, they should go to your website and your emails there or a contact page. Right, right. I'm not prejudiced. I'll start with the, uh, the ones just starting out. If they're good, I mean, look at Hal Roach. He, he, he recognized quality with a, a young guy like me. And so, uh, so can I, but I can't make general sweeping, uh, words of wisdom to how to make it a, a success in Hollywood, because believe me, uh, everybody's got their own path and also the changing circumstances of quote unquote Hollywood. Well, thank God it might not be necessary to be in Hollywood anymore with the technology we've got now. I've never really, to be honest, been that much uh, uh, embedded in the Hollywood infrastructure, naturally. I'm not. <laughs> I, you know, I lived years in New York City, and I was a very underground kind of an artist. And I just came to Hollywood. That's all. Think of me that way, okay? And if I have a great success, it's not going to go to my head. Because I've done it my way, and uh, I stick to my principles and my integrity. And my quirky personality. How about that? And you do have a quirky personality. I can't help it. <laughs> Kelly, what can I do, Kelly? All That's right, one, one last I, question. Yeah. This ties in with your book. What is the best advice Hal Roach ever gave you? Oh, my God. Uh, best advice he ever gave me? Uh, gave me, well, that's something to really ponder because he, he had a lot of things to say and I don't know if I want to reveal that exactly because it might've been a rather personal one. 
Okay, but, alternate question then, okay. since I don't want to push you too much. Thank what you. is your what is your fondest memory of Hal Roach? My fondest memory. Oh, just staying at his home, the pleasure of being at his home. Uh, he had two hunting dogs that were characters in themselves. Uh, big old, big old hunt. He, he, he was a real sportsman. He'd go hunting even in his old age. And he went hunting. He went duck hunting. And he had a, a wonderful housekeeper named Luce. And uh, I speak, you know, I spoke Spanish. She, she was from the Dominican Republic, but we could speak Spanish together. And she was a wonderful cook. And one night she served duck soup, which happens to be the title of the very first movie Laurel and Hardy made as a team at the Hal Roach Studios. It was called Duck Soup. And I, there I was having duck soup with Hal Roach. And I took a spoonful of soup. And there was something in, what the hell is this? Out popped a BB. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> there were two or three BBs in the soup we discovered that was from shot by Hal Roach. And I, I regret to this day I did not save those BBs. I'd put them in, you know, in a display case somewhere. I'd, I'd donate them to the new Hollywood Museum that's opening up. Darn. And that's an exhibit I would go to see. Oh, thank you. Oh, you know, uh, in 2014, they did have a wonderful Hal Roach exhibit. I have photographs in my book of it. Uh, fabulous exhibit over at the one on uh, Highland. A whole floor dedicated to Hal Roach. They had the costumes. They had Harold Lloyd's makeup uh, case and uh, glasses that he used and this and that. And costumes and little film clips and documents. And it was a wonderful exhibit. And it lasted most of 2014. It was really great. So well, let's his... see. well, some young creative hears this, goes to your website, drops you a line, says, Craig, I want you to be my mentor. I want you to report back to us how that goes. I'll be happy to do so. Well, you're I'm book... only going to choose the right ones. Well, we got to have a vetting process. So the book, I have to read the whole title because I love reading what you write. 100 Years of Brodies with Hal Roach, The Jaunty Journeys of a Hollywood Motion Picture and Television Pioneer. It's written by Craig Coleman. He's a writer. He's an actor. He's going to be maybe your mentor. And just a big thank you for not just being on my show, but guess what, Craig? You are on podcast number one for my new podcast. Oh, how wonderful. I am honored. I like being oh. number one. Yeah, sure. And you're number one in my book, sir, and I'll be in a movie of yours any day of the week. Even, uh, even one of your scary ones. Oh, God, scary is the best. Well, you freaked me out with that movie. I know <laughs> that, that's an extreme. That was a, such an extreme. I, I have to tell you, it was literally probably the most extreme horror movie I have ever watched. And uh, if I were to be an actor in one of those movies and I have to be in some kind of a torture scene or something like that, I, I, I don't like pain and torture you may make it look real on the screen that's fine but in the filming process please be gentle okay kelly I, i'm usually pretty good the, probably the worst you'll feel is like really cold temperatures because we normally film like outside when it's 25 degrees out that's probably like the most pain you'll be in oh i see well i'm willing to sacrifice for the art